We turn again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. The reading begins at verse 16. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. So that by his suffering and death, we might be delivered from the curse of our sins. Grant us grace, O Lord, to believe the promise of the gospel. To the glory of your name, amen. Mark 15, beginning at verse 15. Let us hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, power, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The cross is the universal symbol of the Christian faith. How odd that the symbol of salvation should be, in fact, an instrument of death, an instrument of cruel and unusual punishment. Crucifixion was the Roman way of dealing with the criminal trash of the empire. Roman citizens could not be crucified. Crucifixion was for the dregs of society, the worst of criminals. Gypsy thieves, runaway slaves, revolutionary terrorists. Jesus was regarded as such. Just as the prophet Isaiah spoke, he was despised and rejected by men. Mark tells us that Pilate, seeking to please the crowd, first ordered that Jesus be flogged, scourged, whipped. New Testament scholar William Hendrickson gives us some idea of what took place. He writes, the Roman scourge consisted of a short wooden handle to which several thongs were attached, the ends equipped with pieces of lead or brass and with sharply pointed bits of bone. The stripes were laid on the victim's back, bared and bent. The body was at times torn and lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and entrails, arteries, inner organs were exposed. Such flogging often resulted in death, but if not, was a sign that the criminal was about to be crucified. But those Roman soldiers had absolutely no idea of what was taking place as they flogged and flayed Jesus. You see, something which transcended that horrible moment in time, something which transcended, reached out over and beyond the boundaries of geography and history. 
was taking place. Yes, there was more to Jesus' suffering than what met the eye. There was more than human cruelty at play. The eternal counsel of God, the mystery of the gospel, was being fulfilled. For as Isaiah the prophet spoke, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. What was taking place in that horrible moment was the substitutionary suffering of the sinless Savior for your salvation and mine, his wounding for your eternal healing. What happened that day, long ago, happened for you and me. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The soldiers made a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head. These were huge thorns, not little rose thorns. Thorns like spikes, thorns that would not bend, thorns that would not break when crammed down on his head, pressed into his forehead. But why? What did it mean? The Roman soldiers had no idea whatsoever, but something which transcended that moment in time was taking place, something over, above, beyond the boundaries of geography and history, something beyond the sarcastic mocking of the Roman soldiers. They had no idea, but think about it. See it. A crown. A crown of thorns. Not a crown of gold, not a crown of glory, but a crown of thorns. Thorns? Ah, the crown of the curse. This was Adam's crown. The crown of the curse, the crown of thorns. The thorns which fell upon creation when Adam sinned against God. When Adam reached out to grasp equality with God and to set himself upon the throne of his own life and the throne of the universe. This was Adam's crown, the curse upon his head, the curse upon your head. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's curse is our curse. Adam's crown is our crown, the crown of thorns. But now, see him. Jesus, the new Adam, the true Adam, the righteous Adam, the faithful Adam, the obedient Adam, the sinless Adam. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the last Adam who took the place of the first Adam. See it and believe it. Jesus took the curse off of your head and put it upon his own. He wore your crown of the curse to redeem you from the curse of sin and death and hell so that by faith in Him you might wear the crown of righteousness, the crown 
of life eternal. What happened that day happened for you and for me. He came to make his blessings flow far as, far as, far as the curse is found. They threw a purple robe around him, a mockery of the royal robe which a king should wear. Hail! King of the Jews, they mocked him, they jeered with cruel derision, they crowned him as a king, they cloaked him as a king, they hailed him as a king, not as a king of power and glory, but a king of suffering and shame, not a king who would reign from an earthly throne, but a king who would be lifted up and enthroned on a cross to die. They had no idea of the kingdom that would come through the king of the cross. And then Jesus, beaten, battered, bruised and bleeding, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, was led out of Jerusalem to be crucified. In the words of Isaiah, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They brought him to the place called the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha, in English, by way of Latin, Calvary. It was called the place of the skull. Was it because the skull actually has the gruesome appearance of a skull with, with ominous gaping caves that actually look like hideous empty eye sockets. There really is a hill outside Jerusalem that looks like that. Or was it called the place of the skull simply because it was literally littered with the sun-bleached skulls of crucified criminals. Outside the city, they crucified him and two others with him, with Jesus in between. Can you see those three crosses on the hill? As with Jesus in the center, as though he were their leader, as though he were the worst of all. As prophesied by Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yes, Jesus was crucified between two despicable criminals so that we might see and know and believe that the Son of God has come all the way down, down to the very depths of human depravity, to die a substitutionary death for the greatest of sinners, you and I. His death on the cross is fully sufficient infinitely sufficient to atone for the crime of all our sins. Now, as there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation, so there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven through the blood of Christ. His crucifixion between the two thieves shows us that there is no sinner too low for Jesus Christ. To that thief on the cross who looked to Jesus for mercy, who cried out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There at the foot of the cross, the soldiers took Jesus' clothing and cast lots for it, dividing it among themselves. And on this point, John Calvin comments, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. Do you see the nakedness of your Savior on the cross? Do you see the nakedness of Adam? You remember that after Adam's sin, his nakedness was revealed and exposed. That nakedness which had been a symbol of his innocence, the nakedness which had been a, an expression of his purity, became instead the revelation of his guilt and shame. Adam's eyes were opened and he knew that he was naked. Does it not cause you to tremble with fear when you think of standing before the judgment throne of Almighty God? In the words of the letter to the Hebrews, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's crown is our crown. Adam's nakedness is our nakedness. But Jesus Christ took Adam's place and therefore yours and mine. In the nakedness of our guilt and shame on the cross and in our nakedness he was exposed and he was held accountable to the righteous judgment of God Jesus clothed himself with your nakedness so that your nakedness might be covered with the royal robe of his righteousness. The eternal counsel and divine decree of God for the salvation of his people through his Son was being fulfilled in every detail by the crucifixion of Jesus. What happened on the cross so long ago, so far away, happened for you and me. In some cases of crucifixions, the, the criminal's arms were tied to the crossbeam. But in this case, nails were driven through Jesus' hands or lower wrists. And the horizontal crossbeam with the criminal upon it was then hoisted up and attached to the vertical beam. And then the feet were nailed to the vertical beam. There was a small seat on the vertical beam. Perhaps you've seen that in artwork, which partially supported the weight of the body, not to relieve the agony, mind you, but to prolong it. 
to give the criminal just enough support so that he would have to suffer a little longer. In order to breathe, the crucified criminal, already beaten and flogged nearly to death, stripped naked, had to, had to pull with his arms and push with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. And muscle spasms would convulse through the victim, intolerable pain throbbing through his entire body with every faint beat of the pulse. And the relief which only death could bring came slowly and dreadfully. And finally, as fatigue and exhaustion and exposure to the elements sucked the remaining strength out of the criminal, he would slump on the cross, his lungs would collapse, and he would suffocate to death. And justice would be served. But in this case, it would not be Roman justice because, in fact, really, this was Roman injustice. Ah, but justice was served. The justice of God served upon the Son of God. Something which transcended that horrible event in history, something which reached out over beyond the bounds of history and geography, was taking place just as Isaiah prophesied. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now here's the key to understanding the crucifixion of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. You probably, first of all, most often think of the cross as an expression of God's love, and you are not wrong in thinking so. Romans 5, 8, which we've read this morning, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there are many other verses in which the cross or the death of Jesus is referenced as an expression of God's love. But the question is, why is that an expression of God's love? Or how is it an expression of God's love? Is it, is it merely an expression of some uh, emotional affection? How would that work? Ah, well, the fact is that it, the cross is an expression of God's love because at the very same time, and really logically prior, the cross is an expression of God's wrath and justice against sin, your sins and mine. But God's wrath and justice against your sins and mine were poured out on Jesus as our substitute. Therein is God's love toward sinners. You see, God's, God's love for sinners, it, it's not soft. It's not mushy. It's not sentimental, emotional. It, if I may put it this way, God's love is not pastel, it is blood red. 
God's love for sinners is a love which satisfied, fully satisfied his own holy, righteous justice against sin. The incarnate Son of God took upon, our, took upon himself our sins and suffered in order to satisfy his own divine justice against our sins. So if you've, if you've ever wondered how God could ever really forgive you, and I hope that you have wondered that, it is this, that the free and full forgiveness of all your sins, God's mercy upon you, flows to you in his love for you through the satisfaction of his justice against you executed upon Jesus on the cross. Now these days, I think people approach forgiveness in, in, in two ways that are misguided. And one is, is that it's just easy for God to forgive sins. That's what God does. It's no big deal. Look at Jesus on the cross and say that it's no big deal. But the other error is that sometimes we are deeply troubled in our conscience. Am I really forgiven? How could God really ever forgive me? With this nagging feeling, oh, Look to Jesus, look to the cross, look to the satisfaction of God's justice against your sin. Every debt paid. Because Jesus, my substitutionary suffering Savior, bore the wrath of God and satisfied the justice of God. For on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, put it this way, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous. What happened on that day happened for you and me. At the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, quoting Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry from hell itself. Jesus' physical torments on the cross were terrible indeed, but not nearly so terrible as the spiritual torment of being forsaken by the Father. Yet this is what Jesus suffered for our salvation, the hell of forsakenness by God. He suffered the rejection of his father, cut off and cast off, and that is hell. But the promise of the gospel is that because Christ Jesus was forsaken on the cross, we who trust in him will not ever be forsaken. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Christ Jesus himself on the cross has suffered our condemnation for us. 
Finally, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last, but this was not a moment of defeat. This was the moment of victory. On the cross, something which transcended that horrible moment in time, something reached out over beyond the limits of history and geography was taking place. The death of Jesus Christ was the death of death itself for all who trust in him. He died your death to destroy your death. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The death of Christ was the death of your death. Again, I quote Calvin, the death of Christ is our confident hope of life and our fearless triumph over death because the Son of God has endured it in our stead and has been victorious. The death of Christ is our confident hope of life and our fearless triumph over death because the Son of God has endured it in our stead and has been victorious. It is true. The creator of heaven and earth has come into the world and invaded death's domain and conquered it to set us free. What happened on the cross happened for you and me. I know all too well what it is to be weighed down by the burden of sin. I know what it's like to look at my life and see all the selfish, stupid, sinful, hurtful, inexcusable things I've done, even as a Christian. To feel the pang of regret and shame and guilt. To be overwhelmed with a sense of my own failure and my own filth. I know what it's like. I know what it's like not to be able to turn back the hands of time. Not to be able to undo what I have done. Not to be able to do now what I should have done then but didn't, I know what it's like to know that I cannot save myself. And I know that there is only one way to deal with the reality of my iniquity, the guilt of my sins and the shame of my shortfallings. And that is to deal with it the only way God has said to deal with it. And the way in which God himself has graciously and mercifully provided. To run to Jesus as fast as I can to throw myself at the foot of the cross, to cast my soul on the promise of his redeeming blood and to cry out in faith, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray for that grace which only you can give to enable us to believe it in the depths of our hearts so that our lives will be renewed and transformed more nearly into the likeness of your Son who loved us and gave himself up for us. We pray in his name. Amen.